So we're in a challenging um, and therefore important passage today. We're on page 1155 in the Church Bibles, and uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 40. Uh, let me give you the context, and then we'll pray, and then we'll go into the passage. Last week, we were looking at the gift of tongues and prophecy, and in fact, these gifts have been looked at over three chapters, chapters 12 through 14, and the center of all that is love. Everything has to be done with love, and we were looking particularly how the gifts of prophecy are known if they are characterized by strengthening, encouraging, comforting, and edifying. That means building people up. So if someone comes to you and says, I've got a word for you, and it tears you down or destroys you or knocks other people around you and goes, there, God says they're terrible, chances are that's not prophecy. It may be the edge of a gifting, a shadow side of a gifting, but it's not prophecy because Christian charismatic gifts, when they're used, are used in love. And love comforts, strengthens, edifies, builds up. Uh, encourages people. So that's the test of whether something is a good prophecy. And we were looking at that last week, and we were looking at how sometimes God also does this wonderful thing of bypassing our minds um, through experiences of the Holy Spirit, and in particular the gift of tongues, which enables us to realize that there is indeed something extraordinary um, about God that is more than our limited brains can understand. And we looked at how you can impact unbelievers when they experience these gifts at work in our community. And today, in a passage we're going to look at, we're going to look at how um, good worship people have got to be involved in. Um, it's got to be ordered. Um, it's got to be... Um, uh, yeah, it's got to be involved and ordered and, and charismatic as well in order to uh, be everything that it can be in a community. And then we've got the uh, tricky verses to look at as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you spread a table before us of uh, meaty food good food that we can really grow from. And I pray that today you'll give us the appetite and ability to digest this wonderful passage and understand all that you meant through it when you authored it through your apostle Paul. Amen. So the context is that Paul's saying, you guys must eagerly desire these spiritual gifts, particularly the ability to speak out God's truth to people and you remember last week I gave an example of how people had spoken over me at the New Wine Gathering, and it really just helped me to get rid of something in my life and to press on with God in other ways. Uh, immensely wonderful. I was on the train yesterday coming back from assessing different church plants and whether they would work or not as part of a team I'm on, um, and I just felt God nudge me in my head and say, get off the train here. And I got off the train, and he was like, get back on the train, and I walked down the platform there. And I ended up, um, someone was getting on the train just the same time as me and had a really important conversation with them. The, the Spirit loves to whisper in our ears in, in ways that you learn to hone into and obey. And as you obey them and hone into them, 
it gives you more of them. It's a brilliant conversation. No way I could have known who was coming. He didn't say, if you go down a platform, you will meet so-and-so and you can have a conversation with them. He said, just get off the train. That's a great example of how prophecy often works. Is you just have the first inclination, you run with it, and you realize why afterwards, and you come home going, there's a God. Um, because I got off the train and got on it again, and I met someone. And I couldn't have known that, but someone did. Someone bigger than me understands everything and can whisper in my ear, say, why can he whisper in your ear, Richard? What's different about you? Nothing different about me. I'm a child of God. What did Jesus say? My sheep know my voice. So it's available for all of us to listen to God's voice. And he loves to speak to us in different ways, but that's certainly a way that he speaks to me. But of course, there is a recipe for absolute confusion here, isn't there? One of my roles in the church is to be the sort of gatekeeper. So I, um, I organize rotors and things like that and see who's going to be on our teaching teams and so forth. And of course, there are always people for whom being up the front is is very special and big deal. And that, sometimes that's great to honor that um, when they're contributing in their gifts. But there's always likely to be one or two people who would like to be overexposed compared to where God's given them maturity at this stage or where their servant heart is, where they're willing to do the hard graph work behind the scenes has to match how much public ministry they can have. Um, one without the other causes enormous trouble over time. So someone who just wants a platform should rarely have a platform uh, in church life. And yet when the Spirit comes among us, it says in verse 26, this incredible thing. Everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. In other words, there's a toolkit here. And when you come into church, there's a tool that you can pick up and use and that tool will help other people to construct the building that God's making you into. Now, some formats of services make this um, more easy to do in the actual worship service, per se. And some mean that you're probably doing this around the edges. It's one of the reasons we have coffee times after services or lunches after services, because that's very much, according to this, a big part of church. The encouragement that you share over lunchtime, the person you speak to, maybe a tongue you have that you interpret for them. During communion, I was praying for you, and I think God said this to you. You whisper in their ear at the end of the service. These are all ways within a traditional service that we can exercise what this is saying. Say, I've come to church today, and I have something, by definition, according to this passage, which will build someone else up. Now, it may be that all of the energy on focus is focused on building up the person that you saw up the front. Oh, Dennis, you did so well today. Um, uh, Tim, Lydia, you did so well today. Richard, that was great. Thank you. But it might actually be that the person either side of you uh, in the chairs is the person God wants to speak to you about and to them through you. Um, when we took communion, I stood next to you, and I just had this sense that God wanted to say to you, you are my child. You are my daughter. Guess if that was the thing they were struggling with that day, and you've said that to them on the way out, guess how they walk out the door? They're floating on air, aren't they? Because you listened and you spoke. Prophecy, and this is very important later on in the passage, prophecy requires speaking. You have to speak it out. I suppose you could write it out if you're mute um, or making a note, but you have to communicate what God's saying, and that's very important later on in the passage. 
And all of this must be done for the strengthening of the church. Sometimes we look at a church and say, that's a weak church. That's a struggling church. It probably means that all the members of the church aren't doing these strengthening, encouraging, edifying, building up things. Why not? Probably because they've got a learned pattern of behavior that all of the ministry comes from the front outwards rather than sideways. Front outwards is not a good pattern of church, although it's how we formally do the liturgical services. That's why the real church is often what happens in the cafe afterwards. This is just the prelude that gets you in the mood for being real church together at the end of the service. Um, and he, he, he establishes um, how to do it. Now, imagine that we're not in a, a liturgical service, but more of a free-for-all, maybe a, a home group um, or a six o'clock service or, or something like that. Um, and in your home group, everyone just speaks at the same time. You know, I understand this, I understand, I understand that. Have you ever been in a group like that? If there's a vacuum of leadership, often that happens, doesn't it? Um, I wouldn't presume to um, say what sort of group it's most likely in, but, but it happens. And he's saying, look, it's not any good for anyone. Uh, unless you're listening to other people, you're not loving other people, so let's get it in order, one at a time. Speak one at a time. Um, and notice... What he's encouraging them to speak isn't their own blessed, great ideas, their own experience of what they've thought, or, or just themselves and the splurge of their problems. You know, I've come to church to tell everyone my problems. He's saying, speak out the words that God's whispered in your ear that will comfort, strengthen, edify, and build people up. Encourage people, and let God encourage people through you. Now, sometimes encouraging people is going, actually, life's really hard for me at the moment, but he's with me in the middle of it. It doesn't mean you have to pretend that you're good. That's not very encouraging for anyone if they come to church and everyone else is pretending that life's wonderful and they're feeling miserable. <laughs> There's a realism that is encouraging. You say, my life's really bad, but he's faithful. That's an incredible testimony. Or, or life's really bad and I can't see a glimmer in him. Could you pray for me? Because I, I, I want to trust him. Help me. That builds people up. Because they get to minister to you. And we remember, don't we, that it's better to, give than to um, better to give than receive. One of the things you can give people is the gift of letting them give to you. Maybe you're a self-sufficient person. I don't want anything from you. Actually, Maybe the thing you can give someone is your vulnerability. Please pray for me. I need you. Maybe someone that you see as being weaker than you in some way, you say, please pray for me. What does that do to them? It lifts them up to being your peer and makes them know that they're important in the body of Christ. You see, Christianity is relational and we all play our part in it. Very important. Christianity participatory and ordered. That's verses 29 through 32. Makes it crystal clear that if you are speaking prophetically, you have the ability to control what you're saying. It's not disordered. It's not the sort of um, ecstatic utterance where you just can't control what's going on in a tongue or anything like that. It's not some bizarre um, sort of maybe what you might see as an Eastern religious um, experience where you have no control whatsoever. You're in a trance. No, the spirit of God is a spirit of order and of self-control and of peace. Um, and so there's a control in these things. Um, 
And so he's telling the Adelphoi that when they come together, everyone has these hymns, words of instructions, revelation, tongue, or interpretation. Now, everyone is an interesting word in this passage, isn't it? Um, who do you think everyone means? <laughs> Presumably everyone. Um, so what about this word Adelphoi? It's verse 26. What should we say Adelphoi? It's translated in the today's New International Version and the NRSV and other translations like that as brothers and sisters. And it's quite clear that Paul's talking to the whole church, isn't he, at this point? He's crystal clear talking to the whole church because he's about to say something specific to women in the church. So in this first paragraph, what should we say then, brothers and sisters? When everyone comes together, you have a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. You meaning women and men. Yeah? Does that make sense? I can't see much of a logical way out of that. Um, and then if we look ahead to um, verses 36 through um, 40, um, he, he has this, um, this sort of aside, did the word of God originate with you or the you, the only people it's reached? And then he says again, if anybody thinks uh, he or she is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let them acknowledge what I'm saying is the Lord's command. If you ignore this, you'll be ignored. Therefore, my Adelphoi, my brothers and sisters, uh, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid anyone speaking in tongues. Uh, everything should be done in a fitting and good way. And you might remember back a couple of chapters to where um, he's talking about propriety in worship in chapter 11, where he says, um, in verse 5, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, um, which was, uh, was another point that we went into a few things ago, but his assumption is that women are going to be praying and prophesying. So he's talking to the Adelphoi, which clearly uh, throughout the book means all of the people in the church. He's not just talking to the men in the church. He's saying that everyone will pray, prophesy, etc., etc., um, and so forth. And you'll note that what I did there as we look through this passage moving from verse 33 to verse 36 makes utter sense. Um, it flows. So if you, if you just miss, um, if, you, if you go from the word um, peace, for God is not a God of disorder but of peace, did the word of God originate with you or are you the only people it's reached? That's a logical flow of an argument. Interesting, isn't it? So what about these words in the middle? Because they seem to have struck a discordant chord with what's going on um, elsewhere. Now, in some of the ancient manuscripts that we have, um, which is, if you, if you remember how the New Testament was transmitted, if you've done the Alpha course, um, it, obviously it wasn't typed on a word processor, it wasn't emailed around and saved on a hard drive. It was copied down on, um, on scrolls, and then copyists would copy from the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy. Um, and amazingly, we have so many of these ancient documents, again, as you can see in the, the Alpha course, if you've been through that, um, that we've got far more uh, ancient documents of this than of, for example, Julia Caesar's Gallic Wars, which every historian accepts is, is probably accurate. Um, but because you, you're copying from a copy of a copy, what happens is that uh, you get variants because a, a copy is slightly miscopied. Um, and normally what happens with a miscopy is it's someone's, say Dennis submits a sermon to me in advance and then I put it into the Beacon magazine. Um, there's, there's just a tiny chance, I'm not saying it would happen, but there's a tiny chance that I might read it and go, ah, did Dennis really mean to say um, person or did he mean to say people? Um, 
people sounds better to me, I'm gonna write people. It doesn't change anything, I'm just gonna change it from person to people. Does that make sense? And so I just, just instinctively copy it down. Um, and then the next person will copy people. And so you get one uh, load of copies that say person and one that say people. And there's a science behind working out which was the original one. And the, the rule of the science is that you, you go with the, the version that's the hardest one to understand. Because the chances are that the copyist, the Richard, um, has gone, yeah, I'm, I could make that easier to understand. I'm going to put people instead of person. It's going gonna, it's gonna to flow better with the argument. So probably the original one is the one that's the, the hardest to understand. What's really fascinating with the textual evidence behind these verses is that in many of the manuscripts, they are there, but they're not there in the place that we have them in the New International Version or most of our, our modern translations. They're actually at the end of verse 40. So they're not breaking up the argument in the way that they are in our reading. They just come in as a sort of an afterthought where the, the overall thought of this passage has been about order in worship, everyone using their gifts and in an ordered way. And having said, everyone should do something in a fitting and orderly way. He says, and, and this is the quote, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, obviously what it tends to happen with these sort of verses in our 21st century context is we look at it and go, that's outrageous. <laughs> doesn't make sense. Nicholas, frankly, a better preacher than you, Richard, anyway. Um, it can't, I can't mean that, so therefore Paul's rubbish. And, uh, and, uh, and I have, can't have any confidence in anything else he wrote. Um, and maybe I don't have any confidence in the Bible because I don't like this thing. And because it speaks to our very core identity, um, particularly for, for women, um, go, this upsets me on a core identity level, um, and it's wrong, and I judge it, and I therefore say... Paul is wrong, and Paul is wrong, therefore I no longer have confidence that I am justified by faith um, through grace alone, which is the most core doctrine of Christianity that is revealed by Paul and by Jesus as well. Um, and my sense of what the Bible is is much more shaky. Make sense? We go on that journey. And the tragedy of our um, 21st century perspective is that we're used to judging things, aren't we? We used to pick a mix, I'm right, they're wrong, this is where they're wrong, I decide, boom. But actually, when you go on the journey of trying to work out why it's there and what it says for, um, I think that you, you actually come to a, a very different conclusion about what it's saying and what it means. Um, so let's assume that it was um, written in the text, it wasn't added in by a later commentator, which is what some people say, because it's in variant positions, there's like some sort of second or third century person comes in and goes, I've got a problem with women in ministry, let's shut them up now. Um, <laughs> they'd been doing a lot in the first century, but frankly, it's annoying me. I don't like the high-pitched voice or, or whatever their prejudice may have been. Um, let's assume it, it, that God could have sorted it out and edited it and got rid of it if he needed to, um, and that it may have some purpose. But before we just assume that, let's also acknowledge the pain that it's caused. Because these verses have been used to subjugate, to shut up, and to oppress people with fantastic, brilliant teaching ministries, speaking ministries, prophetic ministries, uh, around the world um, in ways that they should never have been, I think, if, you're, if you follow my argument. So as a church, we must be deeply penitent about what we've 
allowed dominant culture to do uh, in the past in the same way as challenging the dominant culture now, which would just say, get rid of all of it because it offends our dominant culture now, which is one of women and men being utterly equal. You see? So we challenge the previous culture and say, God, I'm so sorry that the church ever acquiesced to that mentality of subjugating women as much as we don't want to chuck things out straight away because we haven't done the work of understanding what it might be saying. So imagine either it's where it is now originally or it's at the end of the chapter as many, many um, versions have. Um, and we've already established that women are clearly speaking in the church in Corinth and Paul has affirmed that, not just in this passage through the word Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, but very, very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5. He's absolutely clear that women are praying and prophesying in church. So he can't be saying in chapter 11 women are praying and prophesying in church and then just two, three chapters later saying women cannot pray and prophesy in church. It just doesn't make sense. It's not there's no logic and Paul's a, Paul's a solid thinker he's not he's not arbitrary in these things he's not changed his mind in three chapters um, what could have been going on well there's been lots of interesting work done on this um, uh, and I think probably the the interpretation that most has gripped me is the 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 idea of well, what sort of speaking happens in church that isn't necessarily ordered um, in today's um, services, say at our evening service, um, something can happen in church uh, like this. Um, if you're listening online, I have in my hand my iPhone and I'm just looking down at it, scrolling around on my social media <laughs> and sending someone a text. Um, it disorders the meeting because I'm just randomly not engaging. I'm just sort of chatting away on, on my phone. Um, now, other things can happen um, in terms of other communication in the middle of a thing. We could, obviously, we can be thinking something left, right, and center, giving no attention whatsoever to what's going on, and, and arguably that would be a problem. But it's more of a problem if uh, Dennis and Valerie on the front row uh, are just sort of having a little conversation while I'm trying to expound God's word, and they're sort of chattering away. And maybe Dennis is uh, turning to Valerie because she's uh, an expert in Greek and going, I don't get that, Adelphoi. And he's having a little chitter over there. And Patience is trying to listen just behind. And, um, and, and she can't hear what's being said from the front because these guys are having a conversation in the front row. And uh, someone else is having a conversation back there. And there's just this sort of cacophony of stuff. And it's like disordered. Um, now, culturally, is there a reason why women might be picked out in particular in this moment in Corinth for that, um, not talking about gender, but culture. And there, there is a, a plausible thing here in that there was an education gap between men and women in Corinth at that time. And the, the boys had more opportunities educationally. So it's quite likely that you were in a meeting and Paul was going on and, and it sort of um, had an idea and it was flowing. And, and up in the gallery, which they seem to have galleries in some of these meeting places, um, and where a number of the women would have been sitting, there's just this sort of, what did he say, what did he say? Or, or even, you know, so what are we doing for lunch later sort of conversation. Hard to imagine, but it might be going on. Um, and because this whole passage is about order and just getting things right, it's quite possible that what he's saying is, shh. You mean, just simply, shh, quiet. I'm trying to speak now. Um, 
Have you ever done it in a meeting? Sometimes I do meetings where we go into small groups and, and chat, and then we get someone up the front to give feedback that the group over in the corner over there is still chatting their heads off. Um, and unless you sort of take charge of the meeting, they're never going to shut up. And they'll keep whiffering on. And the person who's been working out what they wanted to say for the last 10 minutes gets up to speak, and the group over there are just chatter, 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 not giving any attention at all to what's going on at the front. And it seems to me that the most logical interpretation of this passage is saying, shh, pay attention. It's not just that there's people speaking. The Holy Spirit is speaking through his gifts to these people. Pay attention. Be ordered. Be sensible about how you're behaving in a church environment. And, um, and so why does he say, um, ask your husbands when you're at home? That's simply because they would have had more educational opportunity. And if, if you need to talk about it, talk about it when you get home. You know, chat, chat when you get home. Ask a question later. Listen to the podcast online. Make sense of it afterwards. Don't, don't just chatter. Um, and then he, he, he says, you know, um, um, and maybe he said this before or afterwards, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not be uh, forbid speaking in tongues but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. It's, I think, contrary to being a knockdown argument about Christianity just reflecting the patriarchy, a beautiful sense of actually how we ought to order churches today. It may not be gender-specific anymore. It may be all sorts of other issues, but just saying the Holy Spirit should be attended to. When the Spirit's speaking, listen. All of you carry the Holy Spirit. God is going to do something through every single one of you today if you let him. In our format, it may be after the meeting rather than during the meeting. But the meeting doesn't finish uh, when they walk out of the, the aisle of the church. It finishes when we disperse completely. We have lunch together. We're still in church together. And it's really important that we all bring something to the table. Encourage, strengthen, build up, comfort one another, whoever we are. And I think uh, Paul, and I guess we'll ask him one day, would say a big amen to that. Um, and, uh, and probably would also, um, knowing what his actual practice was from the book of Acts in terms of how he raised up women leaders all over the place, he would probably be deeply grieved and upset by the way that his words have been used in awful ways to oppress people that he actually built up in ministry in his lifetime again and again and again and again. Um, but we'll find out one day. And there's a good chance he's like a really small guy because his name means small. So um, if you don't like what he says in heaven, then you can, uh, you can tower over him and uh, give him a piece of your mind. <laughs> But may God bless us and renew in us a love of his word and give us grace to submit to it for our own benefit and good. In Jesus' name, amen.